This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kiora, Slamlaikum, welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, this episode I'm actually quite excited for. I've never spoken about health and wellness and food um, in the sense that I'm going to unpack in this episode. And um, when I think about all like all areas of our life, food plays a huge role and food in itself can be quite political the way that we think about food I think can be another way that highlights how we engage with the world and how we think about the world and um when you're on this journey of like um decolonizing and being actively anti-racist um food and wellness play a huge role in that I think um there are a lot of things about uh, food how it's supplied how it's just distributed how it's marketed um what's considered hot what's not uh i think all of these things kind of speak to um the standards that we have in terms of this is our threshold for um what's considered racist versus being anti-racist and it also highlights just the story that we tell ourselves um with that food um and as someone who is a person of color who has migrated here to Aotearoa I really really wanted to do this episode as well because not only is food important but I have personally seen it in my life where you know we were definitely um teased for a lot of things growing up um and now they have become trendy which I think is yeah really really interesting because the fact that they they've become trendy doesn't mean that there's um a higher anti-racist standard now or there is that sense of being fully accepted um, into Western society because I feel like those things haven't changed. Um, but what's changed is, for whatever reason, now these things have become profitable um, and marketable because of how healthy they are. Um, but it's being repackaged in a different way. Um, re- yeah, repackaged in a different way where, like, people like me were just like, well that actually doesn't accurately capture the the practice or the tradition. Um, like I know, it, for example, turmeric lattes I think are really interesting. Um, my mum made that for my siblings and I a lot growing up. Um, she made it a lot and we definitely got teased for it and I definitely got teased for it. Um, when I first started going to school, it's quite sweet. My um, my hoyo, which is just the Somali word for mum, my hoyo would make um, 
bottles of like warm milk and sometimes it'll just be plain milk and sometimes it should chuck like a little bit of turmeric in there and a bit of honey and I literally got bullied for it and I asked my mum to stop making them for me I was like oh like I I don't want this anymore um and you know of course she was really confused about it and she understand why so I just had to pretend like I didn't like it anymore because I just didn't want to get teased anymore and then now turmeric lattes are literally everywhere in cafes and let me tell you something I have had some horrible turmeric lattes um but they cost you know six seven I think I've even paid eight dollars for one once um and now that they're just trend but it's so interesting because I think we need to unpack authenticity narratives we need to unpack well the fact that these things can be trends um but the fact that these communities are still othered like that is a privilege in itself um i think we need to decolonize wellness in general and i think we also need to unpack well who is actually winning who is being supported in these trends because you know, they're often still not feeding the mouths that provide these trends. And I think we also need to unpack that these things are merely being reduced to a trend, but actually there's a lot of culture and history behind these practices. And I think it's really, really important to um, acknowledge that because they are packaged beautifully into just these trends that are bite-sized, um, easy to buy into, easy to digest, but actually these bite-sized, profitable um, marketing campaigns and the way that these trends are presented, it actually doesn't make room and space for the cultural history um, behind Oh, the history, sorry, behind the cultural practices, because it doesn't come out of nowhere. There is meaning and significance and history behind it, which I feel like is skipped over. And actually, I think we need to critically ask these kind of questions because we need to ask, well, is there harm being made? How is that harm um coming about and how do we correct that harm um, we need to essentially decolonize our wellness we need to decolonize our food to really understand what is going on here because you know to put it simply there is we there is a lot of whiteness that is central to these trends when actually we need to decenter that whiteness we need to honor the history and the traditions and the cultural significance behind these practices and then make some some form of reparation and i think make some reparations in in the way of decolonizing in the way of acknowledging in the way of buying into these trends that actually structurally support and feed the the hands um that are providing all of these goods from us and I think we also need to kind of this conversation also means diving deeper into 
a little bit of cultural appropriation, right? Because essentially when we're talking about these food and wellness trends, it's borrowing um, from other cultures, right? And whether you think this is inherently um, immoral or wrong or bad, that is an entirely different conversation. My school of thought is in itself, it's not it's not um, inherently bad. Like, that's just my personal two cents on it. Um, if you borrow fashions, foods, um, traditions, language, uh, what else is out there um, from other cultures. So I think the question is rather, are my actions disrespectful? And the reason why I say actions rather than intent, because you can have all the good intentions in the world, um, but the harm that can be done is very real, regardless of the intentions and actions can still be disrespectful. And I think we need to take ownership of that. Um, What are my actions and what do these actions mean by me participating in this? Um, And I think I've spoken about this before and I've, I've talked about um, cultural appropriation, but I've never actually um, spoken about it in the sense of food, right? I think when we talk about um, cultural appropriation, it's often in the specific sense of, clothing right and it's in the specific context of you know a white person um dressing up or to be honest it doesn't even have to be a white person anyone dressing up i could culturally appropriate another culture just as easily um and this is just a bit of a tangent but i I just want to quickly go there um i think there is an assumption when we're talking about um anything to do with race and culture and decolonizing our spaces. I think there is that assumption that this conversation only relates to Pākehā people because being the privileged group and the majority that is only Pākehā people that can cause damage, um, which is very harmful because that is incorrect. Um, There, uh, anyone I feel like has the power or the ability, rather, to behave in a way that is harmful to other cultural groups, to behave in a way that doesn't honour being anti-racist, that doesn't honour titiriti. And that's because we all, we're just humans, right? We're just humans, and we all live in our biases. We all live coming from our lived experiences, coming from our biases, coming from our blind spots, and... We all have those things, and I think why we tend to think that this conversation is only relatable to Pākehā people is that there is that privilege, right? And when you have that level of privilege, um, the the blind spots and the biases and the um, lived experiences kind of are a, a bigger deal if you know what I mean. Like, for someone like me, I might not understand everything, and I definitely will have behaviours that are biased, but I think just because, like, me being othered, I know what that feels like, and I just have that sense, like, that understanding, because it's a lived experience, and so it's not so much in my blind spot, but I feel like the way society 
structure is structured um if you do have that privilege there is there isn't much of a need or a push to move outside of your biases or blind spots and i think that's why when we're having a corridor about these sorts of things um like Pakeha people come up a lot but actually it's a conversation that is for, relevant for everyone just because of the mere fact that we're all humans but anyways when we go going back when we do talk about um cultural appropriation it's often in that specific sense of clothing and again often in that specific sense of dressing up in a costume and how you know, dressing up in a costume portrays a particular culture or portrays a person of colour. And, you know, I think I've also spoken about this before on the show. And some when we're talking about cultural appropriation, especially in that specific sense, the key question that people seem to really focus on is the question of, well, you know, what are my rights of ownership and kind of, is it yes or no that dictates how you behave? But let me tell you now, straight up, the answer to that question is none. <laughs> if you are having to ask that question, what are my rights of ownership, then most likely the answer is no. Like, there is just no way that you can, I feel like, say, yes, I I do have right of ownership to that. For example... Even though I understand what, kind of understand what tangata whenua are going through in this country, um, because I feel like we're in the same boat and there is that sense of solidarity, I can never claim ownership to that struggle, to that culture, to that history, because it is not mine. It is not mine. And I often my husband and I, we talk about this because, you know, we are in an interracial relationship and our children will be mixed. And as we raise these children, we will try our absolute best to raise them in a way that honors both of their cultures, right? But there will be some things that Arthur will teach our kids. I will, I just will never have ownership to like just because I'm in a relation like in a relationship with someone who's Malaysian Chinese that does that will never give me rights of ownership so I think and you know I would love to be challenged if you're listening to this and you're like actually I have a different take on this let me know but I feel like there like what are your rights of ownership none never and really, the question that we should be centering things on is, are my actions disrespectful? Because that actions, your own actions, is something that you can take ownership of. Absolutely, 100%. And are those actions, are they disrespectful? Do they cause harm? Do they um, continue on that power to continually oppress does it um display disrespect disdain hate um 
does that perpetuate stereotypes does that continually um uphold the dynamic of a certain group being upheld and then a certain group being oppressed or to put it in a more snappier way does it continue to oppress a group which is a mark of racism and a mark of having privilege and i think if we were to center our conversations around well are my actions disrespectful that is a a way more productive conversation and a question that is more telling and more revealing of of you know are my actions um are my yeah are my actions disrespectful um do they actually cause harm rather than you know do i have rights of ownership because the answer is always no and i think we need to ask these same questions when we are talking about the wellness space and the food space as well before we get cracking into unpacking um, wellness and health and beauty trends I actually just want to make a quick note about decolonization um, because I totally acknowledge that there's a lot of different schools of thought out there about decolonization, what that word means. And I want to borrow the words of professors Eve Tuck and Wayne, Wayne Yang. And they made the point that decolonization brings about the um, repatriation repatriation oh my goodness my brain today of indigenous land and life it is not a metaphor for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools the metaphorization of decolonization makes possible a set of evasions or settler moves to innocence that problematically attempt to reconcile settler guilt and complex complicity and rescue settler futurity and that I know that there's a lot of words in what I just said but kind of teasing that out a little bit more I think the some of the issues that people have with the word decolonization is that the true meaning of decolonization right makes sense in the sense that you uh giving back like the the system is being dismantled in a way that gives back to those who have historically and even now um still being oppressed right and but sometimes the way that decolonization is understood or acted upon it actually is a very slippery slope um for other things that take away from that true meaning of decolonization right like the idea that um the colonizer or the settler moves to innocence um like erasing previous history in a way where it's like well you know the clay the the slate has been wiped clean and I think that's not what decolonization about it's about well this horrible thing happened in our history how do we heal from that rather than how do we erase that and I suppose another slippery slope is being a point where it's centered around the emotions and and feelings of the majority right which is often what comes up which is guilt um and trying to 
prioritize that rather than the true mahi that needs to be done. So I use the word decolonization, but I just fully acknowledge that there are um, problems with that word. And so if you'd like to think about it as um, decentering whiteness or anti-blackness um, or as honoring the treaty or reclaiming indigenous traditional cultural practices or worldview that is absolutely fine either way it's all talking about dismantling tradition uh dismantling um systems and so i kind of want to start this conversation about turmeric lattes because to be honest um that is the reason well this is the thought that kind of triggered this whole episode and why i wanted to talk about this to begin with and um i think it's really interesting because it's just a drink but i think as i was saying before food can be political and food is just a echo of what happens everywhere else right and so I, yeah, I've been thinking about turmeric lattes because um, I, I drink them a lot at home but I also get them at cafes and it's so interesting noting the differences between the two experiences, right? Um, you know, turmeric is uh, something... Uh, the, the practice of having turmeric drinks is something that is um, that originates from India but even in my culture growing up, my um, mum would always add turmeric to like milks, to like curries, even just to um, hot boiling water. I mean, it didn't have to be milk. It, she would find every opportunity to add turmeric. And if we were sick, um, you know, turmeric was the go-to. And actually, now that I'm just saying turmeric so many times, even the way that it's pronounced um, is so different. Because uh, I've noticed that if I say turmeric, um, I've, you know, people who work at cafes and stuff haven't been able to understand me, but it's not until I say turmeric, um, you know, with the two, the emphasis on the two at the beginning, only then it's understood, which I think is um, so interesting because my parents say turmeric and all the aunties and uncles that I know in my personal life, they say turmeric as well. Um, so even just the pronunciation is really quite interesting. But going back to what I was saying before, um, just the, the difference in experiences and um, having a turmeric latte at home compared to a cafe, right? It's really interesting the way that it's um, marketed, the significance of it, the stories that I'm telling myself, the way that it tastes, literally everything. So, you know, everything that I will touch upon in this episode, it can relate to any wellness trend that you see that is taken from another culture and then kind of packaged into um, a marketable, consumable um, 
wee package that everyone can digest quite easily. The corridor that I'm about to get to in a bit will relate, but I just want to use turmeric latte as an example and kind of talk about um, the history and the cultural significance and, um, you know, what's behind this the spice and the drink and um just a disclaimer i suppose i am not of um i don't i do not have any indian like fuck a papa i don't fuck a papa back to indian lands so my pronunciation is probably going to be horrendous and i'm going to try my best and I'm going to be vulnerable and say I'm going to try my best and if I do say it wrong please let me know afterwards and I'm I'm always here to learn and grow and I'm always here to to give it a go as well but just acknowledging that I don't fuck up her back to Indian lands and so I might say these words incorrectly um but and also my research might be wrong as well and if that is the, the case please let me know because I'm always here to to learn and to grow and for people to um, bring me forward and call me forward um, but the discovery so what I managed to find in my research was that the discovery of turmeric um, or turmeric comes before um, anything that resembled like an Indian nation state and so just acknowledging the diversity in India in terms of cultural practices in terms of the food the the language, the world views um, the, the celebrated holidays like everything, there is a huge diversity within India and so the discovery of turmeric was before the existence of anything that kind of resembled an Indian nation state. So its first appearance was in pots found um, near New Delhi from 2000, uh, 2500 BCE um, and there were residues of turmeric, ginger and garlic in these pots. And then around 500 BCE saw the emergence of um, two turmeric as a staple of Ayurveda which is the ancient system of holistic medicine and natural healing which is also now becoming which is also now a trend that has been westernized and globalized right um, this ancient practice that's become popularized among those who often um, you know is in the same camp as yoga and meditation and so turmeric is a staple of um, Ayurvedic cooking and so it was in this period when women in northern India were um, given two glassfuls of a turmeric paste dried ginger powder mixed with honey dissolved in a glass of milk and this was given to um, women um, to drink after childbirth to you know help with you know your body recovering from childbirth because it's quite a like traumatic experience physically um and so this stuck and um this practice spread spread from then up north it spread up north um and it also has different names in the sanskrit ayurvedic literature um it, it goes by Jayanti, victorious over diseases, and then Kanchani, 
which as it exhibits this beautiful golden colour and then Lakshmi, prosperity, um, Patwaluka, perfumed powder, Vai, oh, Vairai, free from desires and Vishagni, a murderer of poison. But one name has um, kind of stuck through history um, which is Haldi, a Hindi, which is a Hindi word for turmeric, and it's the same word in um, Punjabi and Gujarati as well. And then in the South Indian languages of Tamil, Malayalam, and um, Telugu, uh, what is known up north as Haldi Duh is known as um, Manjalpal. And I am sure that there are many other names as well, considering the sheer diversity in India. And so when, in the Western context, when we are consuming this turmeric latte, and we know that it's amazing for your body and it's good for decreasing inflammation, um, this history, this the rich context behind it isn't acknowledged which I think um, is such a shame honestly to be honest and it's quite harmful and really really painful uh, for the communities that it originally came from and I think the same has happened to yoga right Um, it is this deeply spiritual practice and it goes beyond just the physical benefits of um, looking a certain way um, having a certain level of fitness Um, But that also has become popularized and westernized in a way that's actually really harmful for the community that it originally came from. So yoga was first introduced um, to America um, by Swami Vivekananda at the World's Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. So back then it was received with very mixed opinions. and Swami spoke about yoga, um, as I was saying before, as a philosophy, so, um, psychology, a form of self-improvement. So that sense of spiritual, holistic nature, right? Not just coming from that very one-dimensional here for the fitness. Um, and so it wasn't until the early 20th century when Hatha Yoga um which was merged with Western forms of physical culture, right? Then it saw an increase in American popularity. And um, since then, um, it's become extremely commercialized, um, only focusing on that fitness aspect and very much watering down its heritage and philosophy to assimilate, to fit the mainstream media. And so now mainstream yoga is definitely associated with thin, able-bodied Pakiha women in brand-named um, yoga pants and going to a studio to work out, right? Um, and so this mainstream yoga is very, very different to the yoga with the community that originally came from. And so... You know, these are just a couple of examples of um, wellness trends that have um, become become mainstream in a harmful way. And you can find these trends everywhere, right? Even just the practice of like gua sha, um, 
if I'm thinking about um, supplements like maca and quinoa, like all these um, ingredients, a shea butter that are indigenous to a particular land but have been um, globalised and um, forced to fit into this mainstream kind of thinking and and so that comes at the cost of letting go of the history and the acknowledgement of the culture behind it which is very very problematic and um, I really want to spend some time actually unpacking why that's uh, problematic and so I think the first thing that comes to mind as to why this is so problematic is just the authenticity and the storytelling and who's telling this story and um, what story are we told the most and listened to the most and and what I think this storytelling comes down to is the cultural storytelling versus the marketing storytelling and when it comes to the marketing we're often sold a story that comes across as truly authentic and um, when you think about brands and their marketing right brands that are purely thinking about their positioning and they're thinking about well what story will sell the most and and, and that most of the time the con- most convenient thing to do is just kind of pluck that ingredient and, and pluck it out of its its context, its history, its cultural significance and insert that one thing that is apparently marketable and insert it into whatever narrative makes sense, whatever narrative is the most profitable um, and anything else that is inconvenient to that story completely cut, which I think... Um, is really really damaging like even when I was kind of just briefly talking about the history of turmeric and yoga you can see how what when you when you think about where it started and then where we are now you can definitely see how that narrative has been changed and changed in a way to fit the mainstream fit to um, change to fit the profitable which I think is um horribly damaging to be honest and um, I came across this um, brand, it's called 54 Thrones and it uses um, ingredients like shea butter um, but directly from the continent and also through sustainable and ethical means which I think is really really important and um, the founder of 54 thrones is a person of color as well and so kind of understands why it's so important to have those authentic narratives those um authentic storytelling rather than the marketable version and um the founder of 54 thrones her name is uh i'm sorry unsure how to pronounce this properly but um Funke Tigby and and I think I found an interview where um, Tigby was talking about well why it's it's really important um, to have that authentic storytelling 
and um, the way that she talks about it, it really just highlights why it's so important um, that it is authentic storytelling and when it isn't, why it's so damaging. And so, you know, there is a history of slavery in Africa and Africans were taken from the motherland and enslaved and taken, you know, from all different parts of Africa um, to all different parts of the world to be used as just mere tools, right? Like just labour, straight up labour, blood, sweat and tears. Um, and that was, you know, very, very traumatic time because it's people who are taken from their motherland and forced to forget their names, languages, cultural um, traditions and practices. And not only just... Um, made to forget it but also punished if they did use it as well Um, which is incredibly problematic and and so taken um, forcibly to new lands with food that is foreign um, language worldview practices that are absolutely foreign and forced to fit into that and so when you think of these these um, marketable ingredients that are used um the marketing storytelling or the marketing narrative paints it out in a way as if these ingredients just literally came out of nowhere like these magical ingredients and that actually is very dismissive um to african culture and history and black culture and history as well and that happens across the board um regardless of what culture it is when these ingredients um these supplements these foods that are sold as fads they are dismissive to the culture and the history that actually is behind it um and another example that i could find as well so um these two wahine are founders of a skincare brand called um vamigas and again apologies if i said that wrong and they um kind of coming from the same place that Tigbe is coming from as well and so these um, two wahine are fourth generation Mexican-American and Chilean-American so um, Kalmon and Dunning uh, they were brought together and wanted to make this skincare brand to create a space and to kind of say hey well latinas are often ignored but these same brands will always use um latin american ingredients like quinoa chia prickly pear yerba mate um maki they're all they've become these huge trends among the wellness world um but the background the history and the culture behind these ingredients have been erased um they are sold and there's no reference to where they come from so it's i mean some might say it's too harsh to phrase it like this but i most definitely think it's like daylight robbery because you know ingredients and foods and resources are being um, taken from 
these countries, but then completely excluded from the rest of the journey, completely excluded from the storytelling. Um, and it very much is um, an erasure of culture and history, and there's because there is none of that authenticity. And you know, if we think back to um, the structures that we live in and the stories that we tell, the stories that we are sold are the ones that are taken at face value as the truth. And if you do not go out of your way to actively decolonize your lifestyle, um, you absolutely just take this at face value and think that's all there is. And imagine if we were all to think like that and we didn't um, listen to the true authentic narrative. Um, that complete history and culture behind that particular resource or ingredient would be erased entirely. And that is absolutely terrifying. We actually need to make space for the authentic narratives to come through because that is that is how we help in healing and taking away from creating that harm and another thing that I've noticed when it comes to these marketable um, versions of the story is that there is a sense of exoticism and you know things that I've and you know I have um, worked in a space where you know, it's a health store and we often sell these trends and fads and um, it's really interesting uh, reading the packaging and um, reading how they market these ingredients and fads and there definitely is a sense of exoticism in the sense that we, we found this or we... Um, you know, kind of assigning the sense of this ingredient wasn't valuable until it was discovered. But here's the thing, the, none of these ingredients were ever discovered. They were always there and used and incorporated into these cultures that came first. But then, like, this might sound ridiculous, that the fact that this is used in 2022, but I swear to you that these, some of these... Um, brands come out here and literally on their packaging they will say you know we discovered this or we we found the magic of blah 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 like there's always a sense of we found and I I don't like I really find that unsettling because it definitely has a colonialist vibe to it that I I think is quite harmful because the underlying story behind that is well it's not valuable until it's been discovered which is very 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 damaging um, and another thing that I have found with these marketing visions of the story as well is the sense of new age like this is a new age um, trend this is a new age practice new age um, ingredient 
and actually it's not new age like it's again with what I was saying before it's it's been there a long long time um, and it's been kept alive and used by these cultures um, that used it first um, but again with the exoticism this new age kind of makes it new and makes it valuable because it's valuable through the western world point of view and the which is very damaging because again it all leads back to this erasure and it all leads back to the fact that we're not actually authentic with our narratives and we are sold a watered down version of the story that's sold as the truth which is disgusting because you are putting culture up against marketing and that shouldn't even be a thing to begin with um like yeah it's very unsettling for me just thinking about the fact that someone's culture and um, practices are being watered down just so it can sell more which is very strange um it makes me think of the yoga and how you know it only really took off when it was shrunk down to fit this um this fitness value that we have here in the in the western world and mean i'm not saying that there isn't a value of fitness in other cultures but you know it's not just it's more holistic than just your physical health right and um another reason why i think um, these fads are problematic is the sense that you know you're wanting to claim particular things about a certain culture but want nothing to do um, but no, yeah want nothing to do with it otherwise and if you're if we're in a position where we can do that that is a privilege of itself um, you know I can say as a you know black girl black Muslim girl growing up in New, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, I grew up being told that my culture is weird, strange, different, wrong, unflattering, uncivilized, um, ugly, not valuable. Um, and it's been so interesting growing up. And, you know, now I'm a woman who was 27 years old and you know wearing modest clothes people don't really think that's so strange people want the thick eyebrows that I grew up with and I was told was really ugly and you know I, I got teased for having my warm golden milk <laughs> and now it's a trend and people you know want to have access to my culture and to things that to things that I was told was not okay growing up and that is so strange and I know that it's the same for other um you know ethnic kids that grew up here as well that they were told the same things about their culture and then now these things some of these things are becoming fads it's made me realize that it actually you know because this whole entire time I thought that it was 
the 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 actual culture you know like the customs and the tra- traditions that people had a really big issue with um but now that I've grown up it's actually made me realize it, it actually there wasn't ever really an issue with the actual culture there was an issue with who was practicing them right like now that it's um if it's packaged down and minimized in a way that it's approved um, in the Western world, then these traditions are okay. So it's not really about, always necessarily about the culture, but it's more about who's practicing them. And if they have the privilege to make it desirable, then it's cool. It's no longer weird or uncivilized or ugly or unwanted. And I think that is definitely a privilege in itself um, to to pick and choose a culture like that and I think we've kind of had this discussion when we talk about cultural appropriation as well right um, you know there's still a long way to go and not suddenly um, anti-racist because these things are a fad it's still very much there and actually the fact that we can pick and choose cultures and water it down into this uh, marketable narrative it kind of shows that this um, these racist feelings and sentiments have are very much there but have changed form now and um that is a problem that we need to be honest about we need to acknowledge um and talk about because you know i think we think it's okay because these things are not weird and and not unflattering anymore um but in reality we we have picked and chosen um what we think is desirable and it's only desirable because it has assimilated and been forced to fit into a narrative that will sell um and we need to talk about that the fact that we can claim particular things but not accept the people and the culture and the history and traditions as a whole and i think that goes to show that we still have a long way to go and we talk about decentering whiteness from the health and beauty and wellness world right because through colonization certain racial minorities um their culture and tradition and practice have become commercialized and appropriated and then that is a cycle that just never ends because that further contributes to the erasure um, dilutes the meaning and the ostracization of the people who have who actually practice it um, and so I, to kind of undo the harm from that not we need to take it a step further than just relearning the context of these practices um, we need to go a step further than that because it's not just about learning the context we actually have a lot of other stories to to unlearn as well right like one thing that really comes to mind is that when we take these fads and these trends um there is this idea that um health relates to thinness because to be perfectly honest and blunt with you when we think about the kind of people who engage with these trends what do they look like you know they they have a certain archetype and it's 
thin, able-bodied, pakiha people. And so it kind of conflates this idea that health is thinness and um, which is so strange. And then there's also space for this narrative, this um, untruthful narrative where health is a, a, a moral thing and then we put the blame, we do a, we participate in victim blaming and but ignore the privilege that is behind the factors that influence health, right? Because it's not just about the individual, it's about poverty, oppression, there's inequities, intergenerational trauma. Um, but the narrative that I, I feel like is quite prevalent is, you know, health is associated with thinness and health is um, very individualistic and um, we do participate and actively encourage victim blaming but not actually acknowledging all of these other things so now that's why when we talk about these kind of things that's why it's so important to not just only relearn the context of where these practices originally came from but go a step further to kind of unpick these stories as well so what does your participation mean? And this is where I want to talk, go back to the point that I made before about, you know, it's not, it's it's not saying that you can't participate in these trends. Um, you cannot engage with these um, health foods. It's more just about being aware of the history of the traditional practices. But also, the key thing is, am I causing harm? So if you are participating in, in engaging with these um, trends and these resources, you have to ask questions like, have they hired any indigenous instructors? Um, do they donate money to causes that uplift the communities that it originally came from? Um, do they acknowledge those inequities and you know offer reduced fees or free even um, classes or services or access to resources for people in need and um, I've just noticed the time I've noticed I've gone a little bit over time but just to kind of summarize the summarize this episode how do we engage with these um, wellness trends in a way that doesn't cause harm so the key questions to ask yourself is how have I benefited from my privilege how have I centered myself in this practice? How is my support of these systems reinforcing the oppression of marginalized or um, BIPOC communities? And how can I how can I make what I'm engaging with accessible to the same communities they I may have harmed? So it might be a case of well, how do I find these? Um, how do I support businesses and services and resources that tell the authentic story rather than the marketable one? How are we giving back rather than taking, 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 taking? Um, but thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. If you have any thoughts, if I've done any harm in this episode with my research or pronunciation, please let me know. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for listening and um, engaging with this corridor and looking forward to the next one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. 
To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarves and Good Yarns or email us at headscarvesandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.